Father, we believe what we have just sung, that you will reign over all the earth. Father, even now you do reign over all the earth, over all things, and yet that reign is not acknowledged. By sinful people who would seek to rebel against Jesus' reign. Father, we pray that you would help us to be mindful of such people because such were us before we found your saving grace through Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, as we have an emphasis on on missions and taking the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations this morning, that you would help to work within us a sense of compassion and love that may not be there for those that do not know you. We pray that we would not simply feel safe and okay for ourselves and therefore to be content in your kingdom, but that we would be ever mindful of the need for more and more of Christ's sheep to come and be part of the sheepfold, to hear the voice of their shepherd through the preaching of the gospel that is meant to come from our lips. Father, we pray that you would encourage us and that you would correct us by your word this morning. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth and how we ought to respond to it. As was prayed earlier, Father, we think of those brothers and sisters, those with whom we will spend all of eternity, who are this day or perhaps already this evening thinking about gathering together in secret, knowing that if being caught will certainly mean imprisonment, maybe even death. Father, we are thankful for the persecuted church's persevering faith. We're thankful that suffering has not caused them to turn away from Christ. We pray that you would ease their suffering and that you would encourage them by your word to remain steadfast, to put their hope not in anything in this life, but in Christ alone. And even as we think about being blessed by you this morning, Father, we pray that we would not make the error. Thinking along the lines of so many false teachers that see physical, financial material blessing as an end all, but Father, help us to see that there is so much more to the blessing that you provide. Even the giving of your spirit to strengthen our hearts. Father, that is what we ask for now, that you would enliven us, that you would empower us to hear your word and believe. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 67 this morning. Psalm 67. Yesterday we had a global partner mission celebration where we heard from those missionaries that we support, and uh, at least a few of them, about uh, what God is doing in their life and through their ministries, and uh, we're able to rejoice together and what God is doing in the world. And this morning we want to continue that emphasis and specifically want to think about how prayer and the work of mission go hand in hand. Even more specifically, we want to look at Psalm 67 and pray for the same things the psalmist prays for in this text, only through now the lens of Jesus' person and work. And this morning when we think about missions, perhaps we may even take prayer for granted. 
Yet throughout history, we see there is a strong link between the prayers of God's people and gospel advance. That is the mission of God in the world to save sinners and gather His church and the passionate prayers of His people. And so as we begin, I I just want to kind of lay the groundwork by demonstrating uh, just quickly this connection between prayer and gospel advance. David Helm may be a name that you recognize. He wrote the book on one-to-one Bible reading, and he is one who helpfully pointed this out, particularly in the books of Luke and Acts. So just consider some examples. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus had been baptized, and Luke tells us he was praying. And it was in the midst of praying that God speaks from heaven and announces to the crowds that Jesus is his beloved son. God reveals himself in a greater way in response to Jesus' prayers. Then in chapter 6, Jesus called his 12 apostles out from among the disciples. What had he been doing right before this? He had spent all night on the mountain praying. Jesus is preparing to move his church forward to advance the gospel after a night of prayer. Then in chapter 9, Jesus was praying again. And he turns to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And eventually, Peter replies, the Christ of God. And we're told that God revealed this to him. Peter came to a greater understanding of the gospel because Jesus was praying. Later in that same chapter, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain to pray. And while Jesus is praying, God pulls back the veil and reveals just a glimpse of Christ's eternal glory to those three disciples. Acts is no different. Prayer is a big deal in the book of Acts. Luke mentions it 31 times across 20 different chapters in the book. In chapter 1, the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost while 120 disciples are gathered together in prayer. The gospel moves forward among the Samaritans in chapter 8 because of prayer. Paul receives his calling to go to the Gentiles in the midst of prayer, Acts 9. Cornelius is praying when he receives a vision from God telling him to seek out Peter to hear the gospel, to not be content merely as a Gentile uh, trying to join the, the, the nation of Israel, but to be part of the new church, the new covenant. And of course, in Acts 13, through prayer and fasting, the first formal missionaries of the New Testament church were called out and sent. That's just two books of the Bible. And if we, if we had time, we would go through more. We could even go through church history. Again, we, we really don't have the time because we want to get to our text, but just consider a few examples. Count Zinzendorf established a 24-hour prayer movement that ended up launching 100 Moravian missionaries into the world. A handful of college students gathering week after week after week praying for world missions resulted in the beginning of the first mission board in the United States to send cross-cultural missionaries. Some businessmen in New York City in the 1800s got together at lunchtime to pray and invited anyone who wanted to to come in during that hour and to pray, and revival broke out in that city. Many of you may know the name of Charles Spurgeon. When you look at him on paper before his ministry begins, he looks very unimpressive. No formal training, no kind of internship, just raised in a godly home full of the Bible and prayer. And yet his life and ministry explodes with fruit. And you say, Charles, why? Why? And he will say over and over again to anyone who would listen, it is the constant prayers of my people that bring down God's blessing on my life and ministry. Even as most recently as the early 90s when Tim Keller planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church, an incredibly influential church, a conservative church in the midst of New York City. It's hard to believe. And he will say it was the result of a year of constant prayer, weekly prayer, by 400 churches that were supporting them. 
We could go on and on and on, but I hope you see this connection between the prayers of God's people and the advance of the gospel in the world, the mission of God in the world. So how should we pray? Well, there are lots of ways that we can pray, but this morning I want us to see how we should pray according to Psalm 67. Here we see an example of how we ought to be praying for ourselves as well as for the greater work of God in the world. And in praying through this psalm, I hope we will find ourselves challenged to also live in light of its truth. So I invite you to stand as we read Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on the earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This psalm is in itself a prayer. And from these verses, we, th- we see at least three directions for prayer. Three ways that we can begin praying so that our lives align with God's mission in the world. So what do we pray for? First, we pray for God's blessing. We pray for God's blessing. This is how the psalm begins. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. This prayer is focused on the idea of God blessing His people. Really, that's the focus of the entire psalm. We see it here at the beginning and we see it at the end. The whole whole psalm is bookended with this idea of blessing. Look at verse 6. The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Everything is about God blessing His people in this psalm. And if this prayer at the beginning of verse 1 sounds familiar, it should It's taken from the ironic, uh, not ironic, that is, ironic blessing in Psalm, or excuse me, in Numbers 6. This was the prayer of blessing given to the sons of Aaron, the Levitical priest, to pronounce upon Israel. And think about the parts from that. It's not all of the prayer, but think about the parts that are highlighted here. The blessing of God is rooted in what? His graciousness, be gracious to us, and is seen in Him making His face to shine upon us. Now, if you're like me, when we've been away from family or friends for an extended period of time, uh, we may call them, we may write to them, we may even FaceTime them or do a Zoom, a Zoom call. But one of the things that we will often say is, I want to see you face to face. It's not enough to, to be across the screen. We want to be there live and in person and to be able to enjoy that kind of fellowship. Likewise, the idea of the Lord's face shining on His people means they are experiencing the blessing of His presence in their midst. The Lord's own presence in their midst. And this blessing is gracious, at least in part, because it originates with God. Who told the the priest to bless Israel? God did. Where does the blessing come from? God Himself. And so God is showing His graciousness, giving His people what they don't deserve, doing for them what they cannot do for themselves. But at the same time, this prayer is not just about Aaron. It's not just about the priests. It's not just about Israel. 
Look again at verses 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Israel is blessed that that blessing might overflow to all the peoples in the world. They are blessed that all the nations might be blessed in them. If that sounds familiar, it should. Because this goes to the deepest roots of who Israel is. God's promises to Abraham, the very father of Israel. When God called Abraham out of his idolatry and pagan worship in Ur of the Chaldees, he said, leave everything, leave everything behind and go to the place that I will show you and I will bless you. More specifically, here's what he promises. And it's in Genesis 12. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, so from Abraham comes Israel as the fulfillment of the great nation that was promised, and through them all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is the very genesis, pardon the pun, the very genesis of Israel's creation. And that divine plan of being blessed to be a blessing is woven into their DNA as God's covenant people. It is essential to who they are, even before they come into existence. God's making promises to Abraham, and he has no idea what that's going to look like. He can't fathom. God says, hey, look in the stars. If you can number them, that's the number of descendants you're going to have. For a guy who's never had kids, what what do we think was going on in Abraham's mind? And yet, God knew. God knew who Israel was going to be, and he knew that they were going to be blessed to be a blessing. They would not hoard the grace of God's shining face, but they would be a conduit for that blessing to the nations. And even today, this is a foundational level for our thinking when it comes to prayer and to missions. Why do we ask God to be with us? Why do we ask God to bless us? Why do we ask God, not just personally, but as a church, to grow us, to mature us, to expand us? It's not just for our sake. It's for the sake of the nations as well. We ask God to bless us that we, in turn, might be a blessing, specifically that we might see the blessing of God's kingdom go out from us. So so in terms of what we pray from this psalm, number one, we pray for God's blessing, but second, we pray for God's kingdom. We pray for God's kingdom. The psalmist prays, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, that Your way may be known on the earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Now, that word kingdom is nowhere in this psalm. And yet, what the psalmist is describing is life in in God's kingdom, life under God's reign. You might ask, what is that experience like? And in verses 2 through 5, the psalmist highlights three characteristics of life in God's kingdom. First of all, to be in God's kingdom means to experience gracious salvation. Gracious salvation. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us, that Your way may be known on the earth, Your saving power among all nations. 
In the context of old covenant Israel, God's saving power was seen in his fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. He grew his descendants through the provision of Joseph in Egypt, where 12 sons and their families grew to be 12 large tribes, an entire nation of people. And yet it was that blessing, that growth, that scared Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so they turned to persecuting God's people. They suffered enslavement and mistreatment. And they cried out to anyone for relief. And God heard their cries. He heard their pleas for out of their suffering. And He redeemed them by His mighty hand. He put on full display before Egypt, before Israel, before the surrounding nations, His saving power. I, I love how when you go farther into the story, all the way to Joshua, it, a whole entire generation goes past. And they're, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. And they encounter a Gentile who says, hey, we heard what your God did to the Egyptians. It's been like 30 years and they're still talking about it. All the nations knew the power, the saving power of God for Israel in Egypt. And after he brought them out of that enslavement, after he triumphed over their false gods, putting them to open shame, he gathered his people to himself in the wilderness. He gave them his law and he entered into covenant with them, setting his affection upon them in an even greater and specific way. They would be his people and he would be their God. But then how would he actually be with them? How would he dwell with them? They are sinful. And they reveal that right from the outset. That they've agreed to be God's people and then they don't act like God's people. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? God is gracious and establishes the tabernacle system of sacrifices, which Pastor Greg has been preaching through in Leviticus. Here, God made provision so when the people broke God's law, they could repent and find atonement for their sins. The breach could be repaired. God could remain in their midst. It was incredibly gracious. But just imagine, just imagine, let's put ourselves back into that that old covenant system. Let's put ourselves back into that cultural setting of Israel. Let's imagine, let's imagine we're walking along and we're walking behind two, two Israelites. And they've just come from the tabernacle. Maybe it was even the Day of Atonement where where the, the, the sins of the entire nation have been atoned for. And as they're walking away, thinking about all that they saw, thinking about the, the, the blood and the gore and the, the fire and the sacrifice and what that means for them to be able to be right with God for the next year. And one says, isn't the Lord gracious and kind? And the other nods and he says, yes. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The first man nods in agreement. He says, yes, yes he is, amen. But then his brow begins to furl in thought and he says, but wouldn't it be nice to offer a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a lasting sacrifice, and never have to offer another sacrifice again. And the other man stops, and he thinks, and he wonders, and he replies, yes, but where would we ever find such a sacrifice? 
we are sinful. And the sacrifices can never fully take away sin. And so they must be offered over and over and over again. Israel would never be able to find a sacrifice. No animal could be worthy of such saving power, but in the fullness of time, God will provide the lamb. God will provide a lamb that is so perfect and spotless, so without blemish, that it will take away in the offering of itself the sins of his people for all time. It was no mere animal. It was his own son. Truly God and truly man, able to be the perfect mediator between God and humanity. Jesus would offer his own life as the one perfect final sacrifice for the sins of his people. And that's it. It's done. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more work that we or anyone else has to do in order to reveal that saving power in our lives. Atonement has been made. Jesus cried on the cross when he died. It is finished. It's paid for. It's done. Now, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into this new covenant. Not merely for Israel, but for all peoples, where we experience that lasting atonement, forgiveness, full forgiveness, and eternal life with God. It was grace in the old covenant, but even greater grace now in this new covenant in Christ. God's saving power has always been by grace. And it's always been for the nations. Even Old Covenant Israel was meant to be a light to draw in the Gentiles that they would convert to become Jews and to live a part of that covenant community. But now, Jesus has died as the perfect sacrifice and now there there is no one people of God where, where God is located. Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead after dying on the cross for His people and now He is exalted above all things. He's been given authority over all the nations. And so now the people of God don't say, come and see, come and see, come and see. We are commanded, go and tell. Go and tell of Jesus' saving work to all peoples. Loved ones, how much more ought we to be praying? Here is the psalmist. In Old Covenant Israel, he he has grace, but not the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And yet here he is saying, oh, oh, for the saving power of Yahweh to go out that all the nations might know it. How much more ought we today be praying that the nations know the saving power of God, to hear of Jesus' love for them, to see the way that He has opened of salvation for Him, not by, not by works, but by grace, that they might repent and believe and enter into His kingdom. Being in God's kingdom means we have experienced gracious salvation. It also means then that we give glad obedience that we give glad obedience. Verse 3 says, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. What will make them sing for joy and gladness? For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Now when we hear the word judge today, we're likely to think of someone named Judy or Wapner. But in the Old Testament, wise people who made judgments in matter of the law were often leaders in Israel, even kings in Israel. Israel. Moses and the elders gave judgments in the Exodus period. Solomon issued wise judgments from his throne. And the the primary responsibility of those making these judgments, we're told, uh, is to protect the innocent. And so in many ways, a judge was very much a kind of savior for those that were vulnerable. 
And notice how all of these things, this kind of cultural setting of, of what it means to judge and to give judgment comes together under God's rule. The psalmist says, you God, you judge the peoples with what? With equity. And you guide the nations upon earth. God is exalted in His kingship and the goodness with which He reigns over His people. And again, the psalmist prays, oh, well, I wish the nations could see this. I wish, I wish they could experience this. God is not a tyrant. He is wise and He is just and He leads us in good paths. If they would only know Him and be a part of His kingdom, then they would gladly obey the Lord. They would be glad to live under His judgments and be guided in His ways. Why do we chafe at authority? <coughs> why, why, why do we buck against people telling us what to do? It's because we think we know better, right? We think, I know better than you. I know what's best for me. I know what's good. I know right from wrong. I see that. You say it's just. I say, no, that's not just. That can't possibly be just. And so we don't believe people. We, 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 we buck against it, right? Who are you to tell me I can only drive 25 miles an hour in my neighborhood? I'm doing 30 at least, right? And then you hit a kid because you didn't have time to stop. And, and suddenly what you thought was unfair now seems more than fair to slow down, right? And God is no different. We reject God. We buck against God because we do not believe He is trustworthy. We do not believe His judgments are right. We do not believe that, his, that, that the guidance that He gives is good for us. But no, no judgments could be truer. No ways could be wiser. He is the one who knows the end from the beginning. He is the one whose wisdom and knowledge are without equal. Paul says in Romans that if you were to try to plunge the depths of his wisdom and understanding, you would never find the bottom. And so all the more ought we embrace his ways in the world to come in under glad submission to his leadership and obey him. This is part of the reason why the Great Commission is not just make converts, but make disciples teaching everyone to obey all that Jesus commanded. Why? Because Jesus didn't give bad commands. Jesus gave good commands, life-giving, joy-giving commands. And so we not only gladly submit to them, but we teach them, we proclaim them to the nations that people might come under the glad obedience of God's kingdom. This kingdom is marked by a gracious salvation, a glad obedience, and finally, a global praise. A global praise. We see in verse 3, and we see again as this section ends in verse 5, this line, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Here we want to linger a little bit on this emphasis that we've been seeing throughout the entire psalm, namely this concern for God to be praised by all the peoples of the world. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to be in the West African country of Niger, and it was the first time I'd been anywhere where five times a day, the Islamic call to prayer blasts out across the city. You can't escape it unless you're way out in the desert somewhere. Uh, in your homes, on the streets, on the edges of town, you still hear that call to say, stop and bow and acknowledge the greatness of Allah. And as I began to think about that as we were actually praying to the, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ for 
this city walking around prayer walking, it began to sink in what I had read somewhere else, and it was this. These people are giving the worship of their lives to a false god, and Jesus deserves that worship. Jesus is worthy of that praise, not having it robbed by a false god. And, and, and that begins to shift how you think about missions. It's not just about the welfare of the person, that's good. It's not just about loving that person, that's good. But it's about Jesus being worthy to have the praise of every single person in the world because of who He is and what He has done. And here is the focus of not just God's kingdom, but the psalmist who is concerned for this kingdom. He wants all the peoples to give praise to the Lord for what He has done and for who He is. And in this way, in this way, the psalmist is very much kind of the anti-Jonah. Do you remember the the story of Jonah the prophet? He was called to leave Israel and head for a pagan city, the city of Nineveh, that was known for its wickedness, known for its sinfulness, and to issue a call of repentance that they might experience God's mercy from His judgment. And Jonah said, no thanks. God, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? Why would I go to Nineveh? They are sinners that deserve your judgment. I'm not going there. So he takes off and goes in the opposite direction. And what does God do? God goes after him. God goes after him. And so we see the story of of him trying to hire a boat and, and move in the opposite direction, running away from God and his calling. We see Jonah's failed attempt at suicide, throwing, allowing himself to be thrown into the sea, nearly drowning until God dramatically rescues him via a great fish. Then he is vomited back up on the beach of Nineveh, and God says, okay, we're going to try this again. Go and preach. And then Jonah's preaching is pathetic, heartless. When God responds to the repentance of the people, Jonah gets angry. He says, this is why I didn't want to go and preach. I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were a merciful God. I knew that you would relent and not bring your judgment. God's final attempt to reach this hardened heart comes in the life and death of a plant that springs up miraculously and gives Jonah shade and then is eaten by a worm and dies. And Jonah is nearly suicidal. He's like, oh, it's so hot. Just kill me. I lost that plant. And God says, Jonah, you're so concerned for a plant. Should not I be concerned for the thousands of people that live in that city? Aren't they worth more than a plant? What you have is a prophet who has deep within his heart the idol of national pride. Israel is the recipient of God's promises. Israel is the recipient of God's grace. The nations can burn. I don't care about them. And the whole book is about God digging down and digging down and digging down, grabbing that idol and ripping it out of Jonah's heart to say, listen, my heart is for the nations, for you, Israel, to be the conduit of blessing to all peoples. What about us? Do do we have that kind of outward mentality? I don't have anybody in this church in mind, but, but I know other Christians And their social media platforms are very much, it's us against the world and the world can burn. They're sinful, they're wicked, they're unrighteous, they're thumbing their nose at God, let them experience God's judgment. And that's not 
the heart of a New Testament Christian. The heart of a New Testament Christian says, yeah, that was me too. I mean, I got saved when I was nine. I don't know what I was doing, eating crayons or something, but, but it was in defilement of God's grace and His laws and His ways, disobeying my parents, having a smart mouth, whatever it was, I deserved His judgment, and He saved me. How can I not look at sinners and say, oh, that you would experience God's saving grace as well? How can I not look out to all of the, the billions of people around the world who are giving their praise to false gods and not have compassion on them and pray for them that they might experience God's kingdom? Even next week. Even next week. I, I hope all of you that are eligible go and vote. But Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green Party, whatever, what matters most, friends and loved ones, is Christ's kingdom. That's what matters because it's the only kingdom that will last. Listen, I love America, but we got some bad problems. And one day we will be gone. It will be gone. Maybe in our lifetime, probably not. But the only kingdom that will last is Christ's kingdom. Therefore, that is the only thing. That is the only thing that should keep us up at night. Desperately pleading for God to bless us. Not just this nation, but His church. Those in His kingdom. That the nations might be reached when we send people on mission trips or support global partners, we aren't thinking, here come the Americans. We're saying, these are ambassadors of Christ, sent for your sake, for the fame of His name. And when I think of these billions of people around the globe living in the shadow of death and hell, I am praying for them to escape tyranny, not political despots. That would be nice but the worthless praise of empty idols that ensnares their minds and hearts. We pray for them because they deserve freedom in Christ. Jesus deserves the praise and the worship of their lives. So we pray and we go, not for the spread of our kingdom, but for His kingdom. For following the example of Psalm 67 through the person and work of Christ, we will pray for God's blessing, we will pray for God's kingdom, and finally, we bring this together, we pray for God's glory. We pray for God's glory. As we mentioned earlier, the end of the psalm ties back to the beginning. The earth has, has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. What's interesting is that all of a sudden, here we have a, a specific kind of blessing in mind. It's tied to the harvest, to the provision of food. The earth has yielded its increase. Now, why did Israel celebrate the harvest? Because God had poured out His blessing upon them. It was tied to the covenant promises. He has sent the rains and caused the earth to provide food. Therefore, it was a time of praise and thanksgiving, not to the wisdom and strength of the farmer, but to the graciousness of God. It was a time to give Him glory. Specifically, that people might fear Him. What is this? Well, if you were part of our home fellowship groups last year, you remember that Michael Reeves explained to us quite well that to fear the Lord is not a fear of terror or anxiety. It's not the weak-kneed emotion of a fearful soldier under fire, but rather the weak-kneed joy of a groom looking down the aisle at his bride-to-be. In the Bible, the fear of God is not a gloomy fear marked by anxiety, but a heartfelt and happy enjoyment of God as Creator and Redeemer. To fear the Lord is to delight in Him. And to delight in Him is to glorify Him. It is to magnify His 
greatness. If I never talked about my wife with a smile on my face, we got, we got two problems. Either I'm a real jerk or I don't have a good wife, right? But if I always talk about Melinda with a smile on my face, if I'm always praising her and, and, and showing thankfulness to her, that means I am delighting her. I am glorying her, right? It's the same is true for the Lord. If we don't take joy in Him, what are we saying about Him? He's not a great God. But, it, but if we see the, His hand of blessing in our lives and we, we thank Him, we fear Him by, by joyfully delighting in Him, then we are, we are magnifying His greatness. We are giving Him glory. So even in the harvest, Israel was to fear the Lord for His blessing and in turn lead all the ends of the earth to fear Him, to see the Lord's great and glorious nature. Now, when did Israel celebrate the harvest? Well, it was during a time called the Feast of Weeks. It was seven weeks after Passover, or as it was called during Jesus' day, Pentecost. So think about this. Jesus is offered as the all-satisfying, perfect, complete, last Passover sacrifice for His people. He secures redemption, salvation, fully and finally. And what happens seven weeks later? Prayers of God's people are answered and the Spirit is poured out upon them. The gospel is preached and 3,000 people are saved by grace through faith in the living God. Did, did Peter go home that night and look at his wife? And he said, man, I was good. I was good. 3,000 people. Babe, 3,000 got saved. I didn't even have an altar call. They just repented and the Spirit came. Now, you know that's not what he did. They gave glory to the Lord because it was His blessing. It was the first fruits of a global harvest that is still being reaped today and will continue to be reaped until Christ returns. The Lord has blessed us and the Lord shall bless us if we are faithful to pray and to preach. So even today as people are coming to PBF and seemingly every quarter we're adding more and more members. Welcome. We're glad you're here. But the elders never sit back in our meetings and say, boy, we're a great church. Isn't Westchester so lucky to have us? I mean, we're magnificent. It's amazing. No, we don't do that. We say, oh God, you are kind and you are gracious and you are glorious to allow us to be blessed and therefore be a blessing to the people in this congregation. When a ministry, event is, a ministry event is successful or a mission trip goes well or a global partner sees tremendous fruit, we don't bask in the glory of our planning and commitment. We don't wear it like a badge and say, I did that, right? No, we say the Lord did that. The Lord blessed us. Let everyone fear Him and give Him glory for what He has done. Yesterday, I love the testimony that we heard from Ramat. If you were not here, Ramat is a man who grew up in Afghanistan as a Muslim, and the Lord graciously saved him through his older brother. And as someone who was a former Muslim who became a Christian, he is preaching the gospel to his Muslim family and friends. And just as, just as someone told him, now he tells other people, Christians serve a living God, a living God. He loves us. And he will answer your prayers. And so think about all those around this country and this world who toil and they struggle in prayer to a lifeless God, a dead God. 
A God that has sprung from the imagination of human beings. A pale imitation of the real thing and is no real God at all. Like God will never answer anyone's prayers. Like God will never bless anyone. Like God will will never bring the gracious light of his countenance to them because it is not real. But the Lord... The Lord is not a deaf and dumb idol. He is the living God. So we are encouraged and confident to pray. We pray for God's blessing on us, that the blessing might go beyond us, that a stable, healthy, growing church will be the garden for for growing gospel-speaking believers who go and give to reach their neighbors and the nations. We pray for God to bring many into the kingdom of Christ that they might experience the blessings of knowing Him and His gracious presence guiding us in His good ways in this wicked world. And we pray that God blesses us, that we might be a blessing. When we pray, that God blesses us and that we might be a blessing. We never short-circuit that process with pride or self-interested thinking. Rather, we give God the glory for that blessing because we desire all peoples to fear Him, to fear Him. Jesus once told his disciples, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. God is ready to bless us, providence, and to bless all of his church around the world that they might reach those that are ready to be harvested into his kingdom. Will we pray for that blessing that we might faithfully be a part of reaping that harvest? Let's pray now. Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, we are thankful for the challenge that it brings to our lives when, as we sang earlier, we have become complacent, maybe even lazy in our thinking about what to do with the blessing that you've given to us, about the plight of those next door to us and around the world that have not heard the name of Christ, that maybe have heard and have not yet believed who have maybe seen bad examples of Christianity and need to see a good example in their lives, Father, move us from complacency. Help us to put our foot farther down on the gas of the work of your mission, particularly the work of prayer. Father, none of us can go everywhere and do everything. But Father, you are an all-powerful God who loves to bless his people. So Father, this morning... Help us to commit to being a people of prayer. A people who will pray because the mission, your mission in the world requires it. You have ordained the means by which you bless your people to be the prayers of your people. So help us to pray. We ask it in Jesus' name.